everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Todd, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to be with you today. A special welcome to those tuning in online or listening in at one of our other campuses. Give everybody a, a warm welcome. Good to be together today, for sure. Well, today we're going to take another step on our journey through Proverbs, this compilation of timeless truths and loving admonitions that remind us in life, in those big moments and in the small ones too, uh, that there is a path that we can choose. As Luke set us up on week number one, there is the path of the wise, and then there is also the path of the foolish. And the, the hope is that we would indeed choose wisely. Well, early in my journey of faith, um, I was drawn to and spent a lot of time in the book of Proverbs. And one of my favorite verses... Uh, which has some, become somewhat of a life verse for me, was Proverbs 4, 7, which says, Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. There, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Which I think is the essential calling of Proverbs, isn't it? As we've been learning throughout this summer. We're called to embrace wisdom because among the many things that wisdom can do for us, it can bring health to our body and to our bones. It can bring our barns to overflowing. It can make our paths straight. It can help us win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. It can overall help us make life work, as we've been talking about in this series. And ultimately, uh, wisdom will allow us to experience the fruit of God's Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and, yes, self-control. In my role here at Mountain, I spent a lot of time learning and sharing about leadership. And the more I grow in my awareness and understanding of it, the more I realize that self-control is indeed a linchpin to leading myself well, if I ever hope to lead others well. And also that those decisions as a leader that will either take me down the path of the wise or the path of the foolish, well, that's often directly related to my ability to exercise self-control. And then there's a stark reality and the hard truth that the most important and probably the hardest person that I'm ever going to have to lead in my life is going to be who? That's right, me. And I got a feeling that's true for you as well. Well, today we're going to hear what Proverbs has to say about self-control in some key areas beyond the ways in which, which has already been alluded to so far. And as a compliment to, to what's being shared is we're not going to cover everything about self-control today. I recommend that you check out another broader message on self-control that we did as part of a series a while back called Full of It. A lot of great resources on our website, and that's one that's going to bear relevance to our conversation today. Well, as we look to take some steps down the right path uh, in the area of self-control, we've got a special way we're going to be doing that. As you can see, I've got some empty chairs here. But they're not going to stay empty for long. i got some friends and some fellow staffers who are going to be joining me in just a second as we'll be sharing some wisdom through a format called Five for Five. And so with that, will you please help me welcome my friends and colleagues, Cass Rivera from our discipleship team, Brian Hancock from our Mountain Road and discipleship team, Aaron Schwab from our welcome team, and Chris Corelli from our worship arts team. Here's how it's going to work. Each of us is going to have about five minutes to bring some strong, succinct words of wisdom that will hopefully give us some perspective and some encouragement and some challenge uh, in some key areas of self-control. I'm going to set us up, and they're going to pop up one right after the other for about five minutes at a time, and then we'll uh, gather back together and I'll offer some closing, closing thoughts. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, there's one more thing that I learned about self-control. Uh, and that is that I most often become aware of its impact and its importance at those times when I don't have it. <laughs> like when I sit at the end of the movie looking at that empty bucket, holding my stomach and thinking to myself, what? I probably shouldn't have eaten all that popcorn. 
right? Or maybe the similar get, uh, I get at Chili's when I see just how bottomless I can make those bottomless chips and salsa. Can I get an amen? Amen, right? I think some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, a similar theme there, huh? Uh, or maybe it was like the time that I went looking for Tic Tacs. It was Thanksgiving night during my early 20s, and I was on my way home after having spent some time uh, with my buddy Tony that evening as a, as a nightcap to enjoying the typical Thanksgiving dinner with my family. And I was cruising along in my new Ford Mustang, right, a recent upgrade from my powder blue two-door Ford Escort. You might wonder why I ever upgraded, but I did. I traded it in, as hard as it was. And I was taking the usual path home. I was cruising along. And I came to that familiar acceleration lane. I was about to head onto Route 50, had the stick shift in my right hand and some horsepower under my right foot. And I got that feeling that you can get when you're in a fast car and you get a little cocky and feeling a little loose. Not that it ever happened before. I was wanted to go fast. And so as I head onto the acceleration lane, I did what you thought I would do. I did what? I hit it. And then it hit me. It hit me that I was in the median strip upside down, face to face with the ceiling of the car with little clue of what just happened. Groping to, to gain my bearings, staring at the interior ceiling light, can imagine what that's like. I, I immediately, immediately began to think to myself this question, how can I cover up my breath? How can I cover up my breath? What's going to help me pass a breathalyzer test, walk the line without stumbling, and say the alphabet backwards, all of which I would have to do? I know. Tic Tacs. I have a question for you. Have you uh, ever gone looking for Tic Tacs? Have you gone looking for something or maybe anything that could help you cover up or clean up or hide from the mess that you made from that moment where you lost self-control? Yeah, I lost control. But not just of the car, but self-control of the guy who was driving the car. And I lost control of him not only in the car, but regretfully a few hours before in the bar. Oh yeah, that'll cover it up for sure. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control, Proverbs says. Even though a decision like that was rare for me, I still made an extremely foolish choice that night that could, that could have caused the walls of my life to come crumbling down and, and that of those around me. But by God's grace, they didn't, but they easily could have. And thank God, no one was hurt. You know, I got lucky that night, but that hasn't always been the case at other times when I've demonstrated a lack of self-control with my words, like we talked about last week, or with my actions in big ways like that one, and in small ways too. And I know there are stories of some of those who are listening right now where a momentary or chronic lack of self-control in some area of your life, or maybe that of someone around you, led to a different ending. Where the walls of your life, well, perhaps they were broken through and they were compromised. And perhaps they're even come crumbling down. 
And some of us may be living in the consequences of that reality right now, while others of us are in a Mustang on our way there. Proverbs wants us to have healthy boundaries with ourselves, for ourselves, and for others, so that the foundation of the life that we're trying to build, that it, it isn't compromised. And so our walls, they don't come crumbling down. It implores us to, to lead a life of self-control where our flesh and feelings and emotions and our appetites, our desires, and our thoughts, so we don't have to go looking for Tic Tacs. So we can avoid the frustration, the brokenness, the emptiness, and the pain that can be marked by a momentary or habitual lack of self-control. So, as my friends come up and share today, and as we listen in, I think a good question for all of us to consider would be this. Where in my life is God calling me to greater self-control? Where in my life is God calling me to greater self-control? Well, hey, friends. How's it going? All right. Y'all see my friend Brian back there? You may or may not have known this, but Brian has an amazing shoe collection. I mean, like, top notch. If there is something this man loves, it is his shoes. I mean, from his Jordans to his Air Forces. I've even heard him talk about Nike boots. I didn't even know that was a I mean, this guy never stops talking about his shoes. <laughs> but y'all, <laughs> but y'all, come close, come close. All right, listen. I heard from someone, I'm not going to say who, that he honestly cares more about his shoes than he does his relationship with people. You can take it or leave it. It's just what I heard. It's just what I heard. Mm. All right, all right, I may have gotten some of y'all's attention with that, because here's the thing, that's not true. Brian is actually a pretty amazing person, and he cares way more about his relationships with people than he does his shoes. The point, <laughs> the point I'm trying to get at is that in less than a minute, with my words, I can change the perception of anyone as long as I have an audience to do so. Our words have power. They can bring life, but they can also bring death and slander. Proverbs 15.4 says this, Gentle words are a tree of life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. The word gossip is simply defined as a conversation or reports about other people and typically contains information that has not been confirmed to be true. And you know the type of stuff I'm talking about. It's the break room conversations with your peers about what so-and-so did last weekend. Or maybe it's that conversation on the phone with your mom about that person that you cannot stand and drives you absolutely nuts. Or maybe it's the 30-second viral TikTok video that doesn't really show the full story of the thing that happened, yet we talk about the person as if we know their true intentions. 
It's the kindergarten game of telephone all over again, except the stakes are a lot higher, and the damage has the ability of what Scripture said earlier, to crush others' spirits. Some of us may know that we struggle with this in our conversations with our peers, trying to navigate what feels like normal chit-chat and catching up with friends and watching as our hearts shift and we, and so, shift into the arena of gossip. Additionally, gossip is about a heart posture that we can take that leads straight to slander, even before we know it. And we come into the conversation with malicious intent. Thank God Proverbs offers us some wisdom here. Now with my time, I can easily say gossip is bad. And then I'm done. I can actually sit down. It's, it's bad. Just don't do it. But unfortunately, gossip is so rooted into our culture that removing gossip from our lives feels like we have to get rid of our phones, televisions, newspapers, or anything that connects us to our society. It's easy to look at someone else's life and comment on their shortcomings. <laughs> or better yet, what we can do better in the situation. Or maybe to say something not very nice about someone because we're really just jealous of them and insecure about ourselves. I hate to admit it, but I have been there too. I can look back at times in my life where I would bash someone else's character because I didn't want to admit the hard parts of my life. They just became an easy target. So what does that say about me? No, really, when we choose to live in gossip culture, what does that say about our character? What does that say about people in our society? And even more importantly, what does that say about those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ? But the good news? We don't have to live in this. We don't have to live in gossip culture. Proverbs tells us this in 2620, without wood, a fire goes out, and without gossip, a quarrel dies down. 2428, don't testify against your neighbors without cause. Don't lie about them. Or there's 1113, a gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. That's power. A trustworthy person keeps a secret, and we know what it's like to have a secret that's been betrayed, or the pain hurtful words can bring. Friends, I want to leave you with these questions. Do we want to be the person in the conversation fueling the fire with our gossip? Are we going to be people who testify against our neighbor without cause? Do we have the ability to be trustworthy friends all of the time? We, as people who call ourselves Christ followers, have to stop with the gossip. Because really what we say about them says a lot about us.
Glad we uh, got the shoes thing out of the way. <laughs> Where is God leading you to greater self-control? Well, I'm here to talk about the realities of lying, cheating, and stealing. And I know those are difficult words probably to digest. Might even send a shiver down your spine. But really, we've all done this. The reality is, is that we've all done this. If you have a kid or a niece or a nephew, a brother or a sister, or maybe even a grandkid, then you've done this, right? I mean, like a jolly old soul that flies. I, I don't know. Maybe this one. Maybe a mammal that lays dyed eggs in the spring. Or my favorite, a fairy that hands out cold, hard cash. <laughs> However you look at it, we've all done it. My mom once told me that if I swallowed gum, it stay in my stomach forever. Now, hold on. My mom's in the room. Chill, mom. I'm not throwing any shade. I'm just trying to paint an illustration that we all fall short when it comes to lying, cheating, or stealing. It could be just a small untruth over here, or maybe a switch of a couple numbers over there, or maybe unfairly using a situation for our own personal gain. Chapter 12, verse 22 of Proverbs says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. And chapter 20, verse 17, continues to say that food gained by fraud tastes sweet, but one ends up with a mouth full of gravel. See, often lying, cheating, and stealing in itself is self-minded and an immediate fix. They are short-term fixes to very long-term problems. They damage our character and they don't take into account those who are closest to us or those who would be hurt by it the most. And believe me, I've used and leveraged words and situations for my own personal gain. And it's always ended up fleeting. See, the world tells us to get to the top no matter what. Scratch, claw, lie, cheat, or steal. Just do what you got to do, whatever it might take. And the problem with that mindset is it's never enough. You'll keep going. It's a bottomless pit. It's a bottomless void. There isn't an end to the cycle. You'll need to do more to get more. You'll lie more to maintain. You'll cheat more to keep up. And you'll steal more to continue the appearance of a perpetuated false reality that is created by lying, cheating, and stealing. See, the success of these things is neither earned nor justified. And in Matthew 6.33, Scripture says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. That Scripture sort of changed my mindset, and I realized, maybe you have too at some point in your life, that you needed an adjustment. Your heart needed an adjustment. My heart needed an adjustment. I was in a place I couldn't maintain. I was sinking fast. And most importantly, I wasn't the best version of myself. Maybe for you, it's one of these things. Maybe it's all three. For me, at one point in my time, it was all three. And chapter 26, verse 28 of Proverbs says, a lying tongue, it hates those it hurts. And a flattering mouth works ruin. Chapter 11, verse 1, says the Lord detests dishonest scales. 
but accurate weights find favor with him. See, because of lying, cheating, and stealing, I found myself on an island with no one to blame but me. And because of those things, they had affected my character. I found myself alone. And in reality, it wasn't just hurting me, right? It was hurting my wife and my kids, my family and my friends. And even though I was benefiting from the instant and immediate success of these things, it still left a huge void, a void in my heart that I could not fill. So I need to take a look in the mirror, and I'm here to tell you today that you have a choice. I had a choice. We have a decision to make. Lying, cheating, and stealing, when you boil them down to their very basic principles, they are decisions. And the experts say that the average person makes over 35,000 decisions daily. What? That is crazy. What to say, what to do, what to eat, what to wear, what Jordans to put on. (laughs) We're always deciding to do something. And what you constantly do conditions your heart. If I was to take barbells and lift them up every single day, I'd make a decision. I'd be deciding to make my biceps stronger. What we do constantly conditions our heart. Listen, friends. I don't want to decide to do things that are going to pull me further away from Jesus. Chapter 30, verse 8 of Proverbs says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And in John chapter 6, 35, Jesus clearly states that I am the bread of life. And so what is chapter 30, verse 8 trying to teach us? It's trying to teach us keep the bad things away from us. Keep them far. Keep gossip far. Keep lying, cheating, and stealing far away from me. And give me only Jesus. See, we feel justified in doing the wrong things and the bad things because of what we think we need, what we think we want, what we think we crave. But conversely, Jesus decided to do the right thing. And he affected us all forever. In the end, I hope and I pray that this is your hope too. That our person, our character, and our lives represent the one who came to save us all. this down a little bit. Okay. <laughs> it's probably not surprising that laziness does not come highly me- recommended in the book of Proverbs. There are lots of passages like this one in Proverbs 21:25, which says the cravings of a lazy man will be the death of him. Laziness is not wise and it does not lead to good things. I don't think many of us would argue with that simple statement. But I've learned in my life, and maybe you've learned in yours, that just because something is simple doesn't make it easy. Sometimes I feel stuck, and I choose to stay there. Or I feel stuck, and if I do move, I take shortcuts to make it easier on myself. I could do something, but I choose not to do it well or not to do it at all. And I think that's what the Bible calls laziness. And most of us probably know what it's like to have a lazy day, to feel lazy, to sit around the house and do nothing, or to scroll for way too long, or to allow ourselves to get distracted by something that isn't really that important, all while leaving undone that which we could have done. 
It might feel like a weight has been lifted at the beginning, but in the end, we just feel more burdened than before. So, so why, don't we, why does laziness weigh so heavy on us? Why don't we feel good when we're lazy? Because God made us to work. And I don't just mean our jobs. In Genesis 1.26, it says, God made mankind in, in his image to rule over the earth. And this ruling that we're called into isn't a license to do whatever we want. It's an invitation to cultivate what God has created and entrusted to us in order to bring out its potential. God designed us to do stuff, to bring out that potential. This is the work of the diligent hands described in Proverbs 10, 4, which says, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. And wealth here doesn't mean financial gain. It means good crops. It means the fruit of your work is good. God designed us to do good work that grows good things inside us and around us. To be his partners in building his kingdom here on earth. To contribute, to create, to be his hands and feet and to be his representatives to the people in our lives. To show them what our good God is like. This is the work that we are called to in our everyday lives through our jobs and schools, relationships, families, and hobbies. And it is deeply fulfilling. So it makes sense that laziness, the opposite of good work, would leave us feeling empty. We feel the effects of laziness when we choose to not use the gift of work that God has given us. But we can also feel the effects of laziness when we choose to misuse the gift of work that God has given us. When we overwork, when we overcommit, which our culture has conditioned us to think is totally normal, we often turn to laziness as a quick fix for our deep need for rest. Our God didn't just make us to work. As his image bearers, he also made us to rest. In Genesis 2, God will rest in the very fabric of creation when he himself rested on the seventh day after six days of good work. And in Exodus 20, he gave rest as a gift to a people who had only known unrelenting slave labor for generations when he told them to set aside a whole day just for rest because he himself had rested. And in Matthew 11, Jesus offers rest to anyone willing to come to him to find it because he himself is the Lord of rest. And the rest that Jesus offers is restorative. It refreshes us in deep and meaningful ways that laziness just can't. So it's good and right that we would desire rest because God designed us to receive it. The thing is, we don't usually act like rest is a gift from God and that he's got wisdom to offer us on how to use it. Instead, we abuse the gift of rest. We use our own standards to determine what is restful, what will satisfy our God-given desire for rest. And in doing so, we take the restorative work that God wants to do in us through real rest and we trade it for a counterfeit, laziness. Which only leads us to feel more empty, more in need of the fulfillment that can only come when we live lives that reflect the healthy relationship between work and rest that God designed. And what I've learned in my own life is that this beautiful thing happens when your work and your rest are in balance. You can actually do more meaningful work with your life. And you want to. You have time to read the Bible, be present to the people around you, pray more, help others, be in community. 
But the thing is, God didn't have to design it this way. He doesn't need my work. And I don't deserve his rest. But in his infinite wisdom and kindness, he has made a way for me to live a life that is honoring to him and deeply fulfilling. And laziness effortlessly keeps me and it keeps you from living that life. So the wisdom of Proverbs tells us, it warns us to look out for the laziness in our lives because it's not what we were made for. Last week I had lunch with a friend and as I was leaving the restaurant, <clears throat> I saw five cars stopped in the middle of the roadway. There were no signs of an accident, no reason for them to be stopped. But as I was watching, the driver of the car in front got out and started screaming at the car behind her. So the driver of that car got out and started screaming right back. We're talking, uh, you know, neck veins bulging, uh, fists balled up, voices really choked with anger, screaming back and forth. Uh, they went back and forth a few times, actually, until the cars behind them got impatient and started laying on the horn. So what did everyone do? They got in their cars, and they drove off and went on with their day. Scripture has more to say about anger than you might think. Uh, it turns out that anger is not a modern invention. Our world is saturated with anger. It simmers almost at a boiling point, just under the surface of everyday interactions. We're just really, really casual with our anger. Some of you grew up in homes where anger went unchecked. Some of you are sitting next to someone right this second whose anger has gotten out of hand. And some of you, like me, really, really wish that what Proverbs has to say was about other people, not about me. But if you're listening to these words right now, then this wisdom is for you. You see, anger is a part of life. It's an emotion, something that you can feel, something that you have a physical reaction to. Anger is your body's way of saying, I am against this. Throughout scripture, we're even told about all of the things that make God angry. All kinds of injustices in this world are in direct opposition to God's character. And God's anger says, I am against this. God knows that your anger is going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. But how you respond to anger is evidence of whether the spirit is in control of your anger or if your anger is in control of you. Fortunately, Proverbs provides us boundaries to help bring our anger under control. And if you're hearing this today and you're not even on board with Jesus yet, believe me when I say that the wisdom of Proverbs could still change your life. The very first thing that Proverbs teaches us comes from chapter 22, verse 24. Don't make friends with angry people. It says this, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go. Could this actually mean what it looks like it means? Yes, the answer is very clearly yes. If anger leads to sin and strife, then run away from it and keep away from people who are known to be angry. Proverbs doesn't actually tell us to fix other people's anger. It just says if you know someone is angry, keep away. 
the world might tell you that the most important thing you'll ever do is express each and every feeling you've ever had to satisfy each and every desire. If it feels good, do it. If you're angry, express it. But few things are more damaging to a relationship than unbridled anger. You know people and careers and marriages that are over because one party had no control over their anger. They felt it and they expressed it. It welled up and they spewed it out. Maybe that's you. Sometimes that's me. Proverbs has been telling us for generations that angry people stir up strife and cruelty because an anger problem is actually a submission problem. We don't submit our anger to the Spirit's control. And if you are that angry husband or angry wife, angry co-worker or angry teen, then God's advice is for people to avoid you. Stop blaming your circumstances. We need to ask for help and start submitting our anger to God. Are you angry yet? Trust me, I'm the guy who got nominated to preach the anger sermon, so I know how that feels. <laughs> Next up, be slow to anger. Proverbs 16:32 says it simply. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. It is to your advantage to be patient and slow to anger. If the choice is between being fast and aggressive or being slow and deliberate, choose the latter. Anger is an appetite. You can feed it. You can starve it. It doesn't feel good just sitting there. It wants to be expressed and it wants to be fed. But once it's fed, it grows stronger and it just wants more. The angriest people constantly express it. They live in it. They wear it like a badge of honor, and wherever they go, their anger is not far behind. But this doesn't describe God, and it should not describe his people either. Psalm 145 says that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Finally, you get to choose what you're going to be angry about. Proverbs 29:22 says, "An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression." Anger leads to two things in this example: strife or conflict between people and sin. So by choosing to be angry and choosing to stay angry, we're stirring up sin. I want to set up two quick categories to help this make sense. The first is things that could make you angry. And if I'm honest, there's never really a lack of things <laughs> that could make me angry, okay? The world is broken, and people are broken, and I am very broken. And if I wanted, I could just live in a state of perpetual anger, and I might actually even be justified. But anger is not one of the evidences or fruit of God's Spirit in our lives. So that's where the other category comes in. This is things that should make you angry. 
Over here are all the things that are not the way that God intended them to be. Gossiping and lying and dishonesty, laziness, idolatry, and greed. Things that do not reflect the value of his kingdom. But while I'm called to be an ambassador of the kingdom, God doesn't tell me to be angry about everything I see. As followers of Christ, we need enough maturity to discern between things that could make us angry versus things that should make us angry. If I'm honest, it's not just sin and injustice that make me angry. I get angry when I'm not in control. I get angry when I don't get my way. I get angry when I am very, very slightly inconvenienced. It really does not take much sometimes. We can't always distinguish between anger that reflects God's character and anger that's rooted in pride and self-centeredness. They all feel the same inside. My question today is, what are you going to do with your anger? Or maybe more appropriately, what is your anger doing with you? Are you a victim of it? Do you own it and express it in healthy ways? Do you submit it to God? The Holy Spirit offers the fruit of patience, gentleness, and long-suffering in exchange for the anger that the world just wants to fill you up with. Let's commit together to being people defined not first and foremost by what makes us angry, but by the wise way that we submit our anger to God's Holy Spirit. So how is God speaking to you? Is it with your tongue, your integrity, your time, or your temper? Where in your life might God be calling you to greater self-control? Great job, guys. You know, there is a paradox to self-control. Uh, we think we can use the self to control the self, but we all know how that goes, don't we? We do. We know that our flesh, in our flesh, we can only white-knuckle it for so long and the, we, before we get weak and we compromise. You know, the I got this philosophy? Well, that doesn't hold up forever. And, and I had mentioned that self-control was part of the fruit of the Spirit. And so wisdom would tell us that uh, the Spirit would have something to do with helping us find self-control. And we do indeed find self-control that way. We find self-control through the discipline of submitting and surrendering to God's Spirit and letting Him control the self that is within us. And we heard that, and Chris just alluded to that, and I think we heard that in all of our messages today. And so whatever notes you might have taken, this might be a key takeaway for you today. And that is that the key to self-control is spirit control. The key to self-control is spirit control. Something else that I think would be good for us to know, and that's just because we haven't had self-control doesn't mean we still can't get it. Isn't that good news? It is. And I think someone needed to hear that today. The Bible says that Jesus is the wisdom of God and also the power of God. And for all those who put their trust in him, that he promises that same wisdom and that same power through his Holy Spirit. And so in any moment, and Brian mentioned there's about 35,000 moments that we can and decide who we're going to be. But I do find it's in those small but defining kind of crossroads moments uh, and situations where the next five or ten seconds is going to determine which path that I follow. In the next five or ten seconds, I'm going to determine whether I'm going to take the path of the wise or the path of the foolish. I think it would be good for us to know that in those moments that we're just one short prayer away from finding spirit control. 
We're just one short prayer away from inviting God's Holy Spirit to give us not only the wisdom, but what we really, really need in those five or ten seconds, the power that we need to truly find self-control, to find spirit control so that we can indeed make life work. One short prayer. Holy Spirit, please help me. Holy Spirit, please protect me from myself. Holy Spirit, give me strength. Holy Spirit, please take control. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your grace and forgiveness for the times we lose self-control. In small, subtle ways and the big ones too. And wherever we need it, may self-control become spirit control. So the walls of our lives aren't compromised and don't come crumbling down. And so that none of us ever have to go looking for Tic Tacs. In Jesus' name, amen.